welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we're thrilled that you've taken some time to be with us today for what I am going to uh, confidently predict is going to be one of our most popular episodes of the year uh, for two reasons. First, we're going to be talking about the whitetail rut, and there's probably no more exciting time to be a bow hunter than the whitetail rut. And second, and probably equally, if not more important, is my guest, who is none other than field editor Bill Winky of uh, Deer Hunting. Uh, fame, fortune, celebrity, you name it. Bill, thank you so much for being with me today. Wow, I don't know if I can live up to that. That's quite the intro. But I was thinking you were going to say because of all the things that you've learned hunting in Pennsylvania, you've got all these tips that are going to make it easier for guys living in, in other places. But no, I'm, I'm excited to be part of it, Christian, and, and looking forward to the topic. I mean, obviously, it's, it is an exciting time. Well, for sure. And I, I would say, you know, with your dig aside, that with one guy from Pennsylvania and another guy from Iowa, we have both ends of the deer hunting spectrum covered so wherever you fall dear listener we you're somewhere in between bill and i when it comes to the the quality of your deer hunting (laughs) i was actually being serious because if you figure you know people will say well this guy's a great deer hunter or that guy's a great deer hunter and i always say well the the best deer hunter is probably somebody that you've never heard of that's killing two-year-old deer two-year-old bucks just about every year on public land in pennsylvania or, you know, Michigan or, you know, New York State or someplace like that where the pressure is heavy. So I'm not even, you know, kidding when I say that if you can figure it out there, it'll be easy easy everywhere else. I do agree with that. I say that, you know, if and I tell people, because, you know, most deer hunters don't, travel out of state. Most hunters, period, don't travel out of state to hunt. So whenever I, you know, speak to a group of of Pennsylvania hunters, I always say, if you can kill deer consistently here, I guarantee you can do it consistently anywhere else. And, you know, park here where I'm at. It's just, yeah, I mean, I'll give you a thing. I don't have the Iowa numbers memorized, but it's similar to Kansas. So I'm going to give you a quick comparison. Kind of a weird way to start the show, but this is really interesting, Bill. (laughs) And then we'll we're going to dive right into the rut. But just to (laughs) illustrate, so the state of Kansas versus the state of Pennsylvania, the land area of Kansas is 183% that of Pennsylvania. So not quite double the size, but close to double. The number of hunters is about a third in Kansas of what we have in Pennsylvania. And the number of bucks that they kill every year is about a quarter of the number of bucks that are killed every year in Pennsylvania. So I always tell my fellow Pennsylvania hunters, do you think that if we woke up tomorrow and we had a state that was suddenly doubled in size and we got rid of two out of every three hunters and we saved three out of every four bucks that we killed every year and put them back on the landscape and aged them another year, what kind of an impact do you think that would have on our deer hunting? And all of a sudden, it's like pretty stark, you know, reality of of how much our reality is different than the realities in some of these other states. So anyway, just some interesting factoids, but let's dive right in because we are, as you and I speak today, we're at the cusp of deer season, okay? Seasons are either just opened recently or about to open pretty much everywhere. And, you know, that's great, but we're all looking forward to the rut. And, um, you know, for, for most of us, that's the best chance that we're probably going to have uh, all year to see a mature buck on its on the move and maybe get our shot, Bill. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, we, we've broken this down before in the magazine and I've written articles about it. And I think the biggest 
Um, and, and we don't have a script here, folks. So if we start wandering around, you know, yeah, obviously. Biggest misconception, I think, on the rut is that it's smoking good from the day it starts until the day it ends. And it's like, if, if you're not seeing the big deer on their feet, you know, coming past your tree stand, you're doing something wrong. And the reality of the rut is that it's not like that. You know, and, and I can say that confidently now after having hunted almost every single day of November for the past uh, 27 seasons. You know, so I've hunted almost 27 seasons, or I guess I've hunted 27 seasons, and almost every single day of the whole month of November, and then the last week of October, and it doesn't work like that, uh, even in the best areas. So, you know, we can we can roll any direction you want to with this, but I thought it'd be kind of fun to throw out that little nugget that, you know, there are only, you know, a handful of really good days during the rut, and, and we spend all of our time thinking of what this is going to look like, but we're thinking of one of those five days and every single day is not like that unfortunately no and you know i think really before we even dive into that bill is i think we need to talk about you know what it what is the rut what what even is the rut because we all talk about the rut but then we talk about you know we talk about the pre-rut and then we talk about the peak rut and then we talk about the post rut and so we've got this whole you know continuum from say sometime in october where bucks really start to you know get more active on the scrapes and then maybe the scrape activity peaks and then maybe they start you know chasing does and then maybe that's when you catch what you know, you would call those two or three magic days that we'd all think of as peak rut, which is actually just before peak breeding, which a biologist might call peak rut. So we're using the same terms for maybe two different things because we're wanting to see that chasing or that seeking where the bucks are moving. Then they hit that peak rut of actual breeding where they're in lockdown. And I've spent days and I know, you know, you just basically said you've spent days. You're sitting in the woods. Maybe it's the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th of November. And you feel like you're in a ghost town, man. There's nothing happening. So let's let's just talk about what the rut even is and are there windows of opportunity in various stages of all that that we can take advantage of by altering our strategies yeah there are um some of them you can control and some of them you can't um the ones that you can control let's just kind of hit on what i'll call like the the primary events or those those days when everything seems to be working your way um the first I would say green light primary event would be a cold front during the last week of October. And we're talking about uh, a rut that's maybe north of the Mason-Dixon line or whatever you want to call the, the break point for, you know, the Deep South has different dates. But let's, let's look at, you know, the northern two-thirds to three-fourths of the United States and all of Canada is sort of falling under one timetable. And if you hit that cold front during the last week of October, they're going to come unglued uh, because it's like a coiled spring and there needs to be something that triggers that spring and they just keep getting more and more coiled because their testosterone levels are coming up. You know, they're more or less nocturnal, but they just feel this anxiety, this tension building and they're rubbing trees and they're scraping, you know, underneath branches and they're doing all this stuff in preparation for this, you know, this big blowout. And then, boom, there it is. It's like this cold day. Everything just, it's almost like the middle of the rut for a day or two. Um, so you want to be there for that. That's one you can control because you can watch the weather forecast and maybe you have to call in sick or something. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's not one you can necessarily put your schedule around, you know, as you're planning out your, your, your year. Uh, but it, ideally, that is one of the, the absolute magic times of the rut, and it's in October. Um, then, you know, we can move forward from there, but I'm just going to, you know, walk my way through this and let you kind of chime in as, as, as you see fit to move this. But um, you don't want to miss that. That's like maybe that might be the best day or two of the quote-unquote rut. It's not even in November. Uh, so keep that one in the back of your mind. You can control that if you can find a way to get out of work when those cold fronts are coming through the very end of October. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've actually had, you know, some of the more memorable hunts that I can recall over the years uh, here in Pennsylvania, the last week of October. And, you know, of course, Halloween has a reputation for, you know, producing some really good action. And I was out in Illinois, uh, yeah, probably just a few years ago now, three or four years ago, and I, I ended up writing a, a nice uh, feature article for the magazine called Halloween Treats, where there were there were three of us in camp, and two of us tagged out the very first morning of the hunt, which happened to be Halloween morning, and it was exactly like you said, Bill. It was a, uh, it was it had been somewhat warm, and and it cooled off, and and we got on stand that morning, and uh, it, you know it just was a really good hour or two which is which is all you need maybe yeah yeah because it's uh and again you know that might be one of just a handful of really good days that the rut has to offer so you know let's call that one number one i i call event number two or you know it's harder to call it date number two because it isn't quite as well defined but event number two is when the first doe in the bucks um, range that you're trying to kill comes into estrus. And again, you know, let's say that they do that blowout, that that first cold front, or that, you know, I guess the last cold front in October, but, you know, they get that out of their system, and then it's sort of like, you know, back into the waiting period. There may be a little bit more nocturnal again for a few days. You know, they're starting to ramp back up again, um, checking out a few areas where does bed and a few areas where the does feed, you know, not really getting after it, but just trying to monitor what's going on. And then all of a sudden, that first doe comes in, and somehow they know. And I don't know. I'm sure they pick it up in the in the wind or something, but it just seems like then every buck is a stir. Um, and it might only last for one day, but it might last for two days. That first doe just triggers again, just the the you know releases that spring of tension that's been building up as the testosterone levels rise, and every buck is on his feet moving. And that includes the ones that you may only see once all season. This might be that time. Um, and I've had really good success during this time frame over the years, and it's hard to peg exactly what date that's going to be. Um, you're looking at sometime after Halloween, typically, you know, somewhere between the say the, the end of October and the 5th, 6th of November, somewhere in there, you're going to hit that day when everything just kind of, you know, goes nuts for a day. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's hard to peg exactly, but you got a pretty good rough idea. I mean, unlike that first window that we talked about, because you may not get a cold front, you know, in late October, but we know that for sure the deer are going to breed in, in November. And like you said, you can't say for certain exactly which day but but yeah you can sort of look at for your area it's going to be roughly the same every year and there's been a number of you know there's been a number of you know by all scientific studies on that that the mean conception date doesn't change and if and if we're talking about you know when that first doe that's going to be some you know number of days before that so um that first week first week in november roughly yeah, it's a bell curve of, you know, if you look at it, you, you have the date plotted along the, I guess that's the x-axis, the one that runs horizontal, and then the vertical axis axis is the number of does in estrus. It starts out with none. It ramps up, you know, curves up to a peak and then drops back off again. That peak is almost always right around the 15th of November, you know, plus or minus a day. At least that's what the studies that I've seen have said. Um, you know, when that first one comes in, you know, might have some flexibility when it stretches, you know, the, the very left edge of that curve. But you're always going to hit that peak of breeding. Don't call it peak of the rut because everybody thinks that's when they need to be in the tree. But that peak of breeding is going to be right around the middle of November. Um, so you back that off and you're right. You're going to end up someplace in that first, second, third, fourth, fifth. That's when the, the first, you know, say the first doe or the first, you know, small wave of does starts to come in and all of those bucks are available. There isn't a single buck yet that's tied down with a doe anywhere, so they're all looking. So it just seems like the, you know, the woods just comes alive there for a couple of days. Um, so that's event number two. 
Yeah, and, and you know what? There's something I want to add in on that too, Bill. And, you know, I think this applies, it certainly applies to me. And I think it applies to the vast majority of deer hunters uh, throughout the country. Most of us, Bill, are not fortunate enough to have, you know, a whole bunch of big mature bucks on our trail cameras. And... I've actually come to question myself why, you know, sometimes I ask myself, why do I even bother running these cameras? Because over the years here in Pennsylvania, um, you know, I've had some years where I actually do have three or four really nice bucks that'll be regulars on my cameras all summer. Those years are not the rule, but I do get them. Most years, I might have none or one, you know, really decent buck on camera. And I found through experience that it doesn't mean that I'm going to necessarily kill any of those really good deer in the years that I have them, nor does it mean that I'm not going to kill a good buck in the years when it seems like there aren't any around. And so here's where I'm getting at. During that period that we just discussed, that's the time to get into your, you know, your best uh, pinch points and funnels and transition areas and inside corners, because I've kind of come to the conclusion, especially here in Pennsylvania, where there aren't that many great bucks, but I know that there's a few, that's some of my best opportunity to just catch one coming through the area who might not be there all the time, you know, and and I just kind of rely on the rut to give me a fighting chance because I know that I don't have, you know, three or four shooters pegged on a pattern by any means. And and I just am going to let uh, the biology, you know, work in my favor to the extent that it can. Yeah. And I think the, those bucks, you know, I've got a example. I think I even wrote it up in the magazine recently here for the November issue. Um, I was on a stand one morning and uh, a buck came in with a doe and uh, the doe bed, or the doe started feeding in a little patch of winter wheat and the buck bedded down in some tall switchgrass and I could see him from my stand and he fell asleep and she left and he slept there for like four hours. I knew he was there because I didn't see him get up and he was a deer that I would have shot. So I stayed in my stand and it was way late in the morning, later than I normally would stay out for that time of the year. When he woke up, he went nuts. I mean, literally, I'm, I'm, he was an old deer, too. I mean, it wasn't like he was some, you know, two-year-old buck with a whole bunch of, you know, teenage hormones. I mean, he was an older deer, and he, he covered that 20 acres where I was sitting so thoroughly. It was almost like watching a, a dog work in a pheasant slough trying to find a pheasant that he knew was in there. I mean, you could have killed that buck in any tree in that 20-acre area. So, obviously, funnels are going to be beneficial, but he was... He knew that doe was there someplace, and she was the first hot one. I mean, I knew it because of the time of the year. I think it was like November 2nd or 3rd. And uh, again, you know, it almost didn't matter where you sat. Um, when that time hits, they're they're going to cover it, you know, especially if they smell it and they know there's a hot doe around someplace. You know, they're not going to give up until they find that doe. And uh, so to your point, uh, all you have to be in is places that make sense, you know, someplace where the wind is in your advantage, where there's some, you know, some funneling, you know, that takes place by your tree stand so that you can get the deer within bow range if they are cruising through. And then you just let the rut be the blender. Um, and I've seen that happen a number of times. And, and we try to make it into some kind of this academic, you know, like, oh, you have to be in this type of a setup for this, you know, that time of the season. Uh, you only have to be in a place that makes sense. You know, obviously you got to be in an area where that first hot doe is coming in, but there's nothing, there's no special setup that's going to set you, you know, on a deer that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten. Just take advantage of what exactly you said, you know, the funnels. Yeah, I, so it's, I, it's kind of a that's nice, you know, because there's so much thought that we put into all this stuff, and sometimes we make it, you know, more complicated than it needs to be. Um, you know, if the deer are cruising, any good funnel that makes sense in that buck's core area or even you know his full range is probably just as good as any other one. Um, 
you know, so it kind of takes a little bit of the stress out of it. It's just a matter of being out there. Yeah, and it's also, it, it gives hope to guys like me who aren't, you know, always hunting in super prime areas. Um, I, I can vividly recall, you know, several years back where there's a, there's a, there's a dough, there's a nice bedding area up on top of this ridge at the top of one of the farms where I hunt. And I almost never hunt over in that area, but every once in a while during this period that we're talking about, I'll carry my climber up there and just get up a tree first thing in the morning and sit there. And, um, this doe came over the ridge to the edge where I could just see her and she came right down, uh, and, and then behind her, I saw this really great buck. And it was one of the biggest bucks that I've ever seen in Pennsylvania. And I didn't end up getting a shot because the doe ended up busting me when she was about 15 yards from the base of my tree. But she was coming straight for me. And he was going to be on a string right behind her. He never actually spooked. He ended up stopping about 40 yards away. And there was some brush in the way. And I couldn't get a shot. She just kind of trotted off a little ways and then went down the hill out of range. And he followed her. But, I mean, that's a perfect example of, you know, a guy who's hunting in an area where, like, hey, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily have any great expectation that there's a monster buck you know that lives here but on that given day uh, when I hunted somewhere where I knew that there was you know a, a concentration of does in the area I, I had a real opportunity there and so anybody can do that and you don't have to have you know some super secret plan or some super special ground to hunt on yeah, yep, you just have to be there during that event, you know, when that doe comes in or when there's the first few does coming in because those bucks are, they're all available. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, that's event number two. But after that, it, gets, it starts to get a little bit sketchier. You know, there, there's a lot of luck that comes in after that. And, and maybe there's some skill there that I don't appreciate or haven't figured out, but um, the bulk of the rut after those first two events um, revolves around just being someplace where there is a hot doe, you know, because the bucks aren't cruising anymore, you know, once they get past a certain stage in the rut, at least the more mature bucks aren't. You know, you're always going to have some of those bucks that are on their feet that just, you know, again, they're just teenagers with a lot of testosterone and they're, they just can't help it. But the older age class bucks that have been through this at least a time or two, you know, they realize that all they have to do is find a doe at night, you know, and, and connect with that doe and stay with her until, you know, she's done with her estrus and then, you know, move on and find another one. But it just doesn't seem like they're moving on from one to the next during the day. Um, it, it, it's sort of like they got that craziness out of their system in the early part of the rut. Now they're more careful again. There's no doubt that if you have another hot doe come past your stand, now she has to come past your stand. <laughs> you know, it's not enough to have her within the acre block that you're hunting or that 100-acre block that you're hunting. She actually has to come past. Um, that's why it gets a little bit sketchier. But then you're going to have you know, a lot of really good action again, and it's going to feel, again, like what the rut is supposed to. Uh, but you can have some pretty dead days in there if you don't have a hot doe near your tree stand during those, that middle phase of the rut when you know, all of the bucks are, are either with a doe or you know, just waiting until dark to go find another one. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'll give you another example, and I'm sure you guys see this all the time as well. Um, you know, I'm out in Illinois, first week of November. You know, it, we think, right, in our minds as bow hunters, it's prime time, right? It should be like that madhouse that we're talking about every day, right? All day, every day for the entire week. That's what we kind of think we, or it's what we want anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had so many times when you go out and you'll sit on your stand all morning. And again, it's like a total ghost town and everything seems perfect. You know, it's like good wind, you know, cold temperatures. Everything seems perfect. And then you'll be, you'll be, 
driving back to camp, uh, you know, for lunch or something like that, and you'll see a 160-inch buck with a doe just standing there in a thicket looking at you as you drive by. And you realize that the entire four or five or six hours that you were out there sitting on your stand, that buck probably didn't move 50 yards, you know, and that's right. why you're not seeing anything. Yep. And then it seems like after that first initial flurry of the rut, then they become more nocturnal in their search. The only thing that increases the urgency is when there is a hot doe right there. Then they can't help it. You know, if they're between does or, you know, whatever the case may be, and you've got that hot doe within, you know, a, a bow shot of your tree stand, um, then, then you got a chance because the only place he's going to be is right on her tail trying to catch up to her. He's not going to go whining all over the place now. You know, you might see some, you know, some satellite bucks that are kind of, you know, trying to vacuum the whole area, but it, it becomes very efficient past that first few days of the rut. They get really good at getting to the does that they need to get to with the least amount of energy possible. And again, these are the older bucks. You know, it depends on where you're hunting. They could be two-year-old or three-year-old or whatever. You know, they're deer that have been through this. They know what to expect. Um, so that third event is the any hot doe. Um, and trying to find that best stand location for that third event is pretty tricky. Again, you, you, could, you could rack your brain on it, but it just comes down to the simple fact that you have to put does, as many does as you can, you know, within bow range of your tree, <laughs> you know, because it's kind of a numbers game then. If you're trying to catch any hot doe, you know, the more does that you have around you, the better the chance that one of them is in estrus. Um, and I know there's some experts that have uh, other opinions on this, and they might be right, but some people feel like you need to go into the thickest areas because as the does start to come into estrus, they'll try to hide because they're getting badgered by every little you know, year-and-a-half-old buck that walks past. So they go into hiding in the deepest and thickest cover. There might be something to that. Um, I've never seen that actually play out here on our farm, but... You know, this is, I'm just one person. So that, that might be, you know, something else to keep in mind. But Well, I, I, will, I, I will say this. I, I mean, I think it kind of ties in or parallels. I will say this. You know, when I'm hunting in, you know, that time, uh, you know, from, say, the, the first half of November, you do tend to see a lot fewer does and, and a lot more bucks. You know, I've had hunts, again, you know, out, out in the Midwest, you know, Illinois in particular, where it's like, man, all you're seeing is bucks all of a sudden. Those does get scarce in a hurry. So yeah. they definitely go somewhere. They definitely, you know, you'll see a notable drop off in doe activity on those food plots as they go from, you know, being pretty easy to pattern, being out in a particular plot, you know, every afternoon to all of a sudden there's no does coming there at all. So, But, but I think that the way we... We, we take advantage of that behavior, and I've seen that too, is early in the rut, you hunt your evenings close to where the does feed, and then as the rut goes on, you never leave the deep timber. You know, you stay closer to where they bed, you know, morning and evening. And uh, that's not to say that they're still gonna be bedding in all the same places, but the bucks, if they aren't finding them out in the open, they're gonna stop coming out there. So you just eliminated yourself you know, for half of the day, if you persist in, in hunting the open areas when the does aren't coming out there. Um, so you might as well put yourself back in the timber. And if you know, you know, of, of a ridge or someplace where does typically bed, uh, another thing that I do a lot here, and this is if you have control of the land, um, I make these little tiny, I call them micro plots. And they can be a quarter of an acre up to a half an acre in size. A lot of people are even making them on permission now because it's not that invasive, you know, to go into a, a property and say, hey, you know, can I clear out that old home site? You know, and the farmer says, yeah, you know, whatever, go ahead. So then you're back in there, you're tucked in the cover someplace, but you've sort of uh, created a, a, a magnet or a concentration point with that small opening because any buck that's moving through that area, he has to pop out on there and check the scrapes that are along the edge. He just can't help himself. Um, so that's another another option if you're looking for you know a different type of, of setup. But otherwise, 
you know, as the rut starts to get to the, to the middle stages, it doesn't make any sense to ever leave the timber and go out into any open country. Yeah, I actually have learned what tends to be really productive for me, again, when I go out to, to the Midwest, is during that, you know, time of peak rut is to just get on the hardwood ridges. I really, and again, you know, it's different, Bill, you know, if you're hunting a particular buck, and I know that's something that you do somewhat regularly, but if you're a visitor like me, who's just going to a particular area for say a week long hunt, and I'm just looking for any good buck that I can get a shot at, when you have that you know, seeking, chasing, you know, breeding going on. I love to just get on a, a ridge where the bucks will run those ridges and because uh, they're scent checking the areas and uh, covering ground. And I've had the more success with that strategy than just about anything else like just find any good ridge where there's like a saddle and maybe some trails you know that are intersecting you know a trail that sort of follows the ridge and some trails where deer are crossing over the ridge just get there and and be patient and if you sit there for you know five days you're going to get a shot at a good buck and typically um so to extrapolate that into an area that doesn't have ridges, um, the reason that works is because in the Midwest here, and, and I know it firsthand because I've hunted, done almost all of my, well, I'd say all of my primary rut hunting has been in the Midwest. The does like to bed on those ridges. You know, they'll bed off to the side, you know, where they can look down into the valley and the wind blows across, you know, the top of the ridge behind them, and then they, they can look in the downwind direction. It's just they, they get, um, that's their standard way of bedding in this in that type of topography. So that's what the bucks are looking for. They know those are doe bedding areas. So if you say, okay, well, I'm in Mississippi or wherever, we don't have any ridges. You know, I'm just hunting a big, you know, I don't know what they, what you call that stuff down there, plantation or, you know, big hardwood flat. Um, there are going to be some places where the does bed more frequently than any other place. And sometimes it's a thicket, you know, it might be a little knob. It might be, you know, there's, you have to scout more. I mean, I can show you, or I can take a topographical map and I can tell you where they're going to bed in the Midwest. I can't necessarily do that down South because the landscape or the terrain doesn't make it so obvious, but with enough scouting, you can figure out where the does like to bed. That's where you need to be then. So if you don't have ridges, the replacement for that is any place where does generally bed. Um, and that does take scouting, you know, and again, unless it's, you know, some places as predictable as the, as the places that I hunt out here. Um, so, you know, that, that is event number three, right? Yeah. So the fourth, and this one is only in those states where the bow season stays open for the whole month of November and the firearm season doesn't come in until, you know, sometime around Thanksgiving or later. But there'll be another little uptick around the 20th of November. And uh, we tend to find then there's a little bit of cruising in the morning still. So it still makes sense to be, you know, in the areas where the does traditionally bed. But you start to see those bucks getting more active back on the food again because the does start getting more active back on the food. Um, so anything after, I always figure, the 20th to the 26th, you know, I, I call it the end of the, the real rut on November 26th here. This is, you know, for lack of, you know, I mean, I just want to have a certain date and just say, well, I'm going to hunt mornings until the 26th. And after the 26th, I'm not going to hunt mornings anymore because the bucks aren't cruising anymore. Maybe it's a little too convenient. Maybe it's not quite that precise, but that's just sort of the, you know, the calendar that I use. Up until then, you get that uptick between the 20th and the 26th, where they you see a little bit more of those older bucks back on their feet again. And, and of course, you know why that is, and, and you know most of the people listening to this do too. You know, the majority of the does are bred. You know, now we're back to that situation where you know, we went through the late October cold front, the first hot doe, any hot doe. And now we're on the last hot doe. Yeah, so there's a little little sense of urgency again. Yeah, so there's, there aren't any more except for there might be this one, you know, and I better go try to find her. And the young bucks are so wore out, um, but those older bucks will tend to be the ones who are still taking care of business. Um, 
that's why it tends to be a good time, you know, that 20th to the 26th of catching up with a, you know, an older deer again. Um, so that's, that kind of takes you through my rut calendar. Um, you know, it's, it's too bad that we can't put actual dates on all of those things. You know, we can put ranges of dates, which means that you have to be out there, you know, to, to be there on the right day or the right, you know, hour of the right day. Uh, but, you know, that's just the way hunting is. You know, we wouldn't want it any other way. We wouldn't want it where we knew, you know, okay, on the 12th of November at 9 a.m., I need to be here because that's when, you know, the bucks are going to come through there. Um, we want that excitement of, of expectation, you know, of the unknown, where we get that adrenaline rush when all of a sudden it's like, oh, there he is. You know, and that's what kind of drives us. It's that rush, you know, that, that we, we seek more than anything else, I think. Um, and that would go away if this was too easy. So there's there has to be that element of, of the unknown that uh, keeps it interesting. Let's talk about some other things we can do to maybe give us some advantage. I know you talked about, you know, obviously we want to focus on the key times and then we want to be in the likely areas. You know, you call those the areas that make sense. Um, but, you know, you talked about things like, well, you just got to have a, you got to have a hot dough, you know, in the area or come past your stand, which is ideal, of course. But uh, what about things like, uh, you know, estrus dough urine, um, rattling, uh, dough bleeding, things like that. And, and, you know, how much of an impact can you have as a bow hunter in maybe creating an opportunity that wouldn't otherwise be there, Bill? Well, and that's a question for a different uh, guest. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm picking at you a little bit, but I really don't know. Um, and, and it goes to my style of hunting. Um, you, you know, it's, it's not that the way that I hunt is absolutely the best possible way. I'm not maximizing my odds, you know, to the nth degree every single day. Um, I like to go hunting and be where I think the deer are going to be. It's part of the fun for me of, of being one step ahead of them, almost like hunting them on their terms. And when I used to hunt ducks, you know, we, we wouldn't shoot until they had their feet down and we had to beat them. We had to beat them on their terms at their game. So for me, I've never had a whole lot of motivation to understand how those attraction tools work or, or how they would fit into my strategy. Um, the only one that I think makes a huge difference is uh, um, calling to a deer that you've seen that you want to shoot that's out of range because then you can tell when he's heard you. You know, you, you can almost play him, you know, like he's on a string because um, you get that visual feedback when you're calling to one that you can see. You know, blind calling, um, and there's a lot of schools of thought. I mean, like I said, I'm not the right guy for this, but I'll just tell you my philosophy and you can laugh at it, but um, on the blind calling side, it just seems like they come in looking for you. And they're really good at figuring out where the source of the sound comes from. I mean, right to the tree. And they don't just, they don't usually um, come crashing in. You know, they, they usually come sneaking in and it might be 20 minutes later. And by the 20 minutes time frame, you know, I've already given up my most diligent watching and maybe I stand up or, you know, I scratch my nose or I reposition my hat or I grab my bow off the hook to draw it to make sure that my muscles are still warmed up or whatever and they catch me. Um, and they, they always want to come on the downwind side. So again, your, your stand setup needs to be in such a way that they can't get downwind of you um, if you're going to do a lot of blind calling because that's where they're going to want to go. So anyway, you know, I just feel like I'm educating too many deer when I do a lot of blind calling because now they're coming in, sneaking in, looking for me. And, uh, you know, they're really good at, at doing that. And uh, so for better or for worse, I don't do any blind calling. And, uh, you know, I've seen success with rattling, blind rattling, but I've never killed a buck that way. You know, not to say that there aren't people who, who are really, really good at it and, and kill a lot of bucks that way. I'm just not that guy. So... Well, I, I mean, I definitely, I don't do a lot of blind calling. Uh, I do a little bit. Uh, I definitely think, you know, 
what you said about calling to those bucks that are out of range, but you'd like to shoot. There's a lot of value in that. I can, um, you know, one of the biggest bucks that I ever killed, uh, again, it was in Illinois, probably now seven or eight years ago. And it was during this, you know, sort of prime rut period, his first week in November. And, you know, we've all experienced those bucks that, you know, they're like on a mission, Bill, you know, and you just can't turn them. And he was coming through this. I was uh, set up in a, in a stand of pines, which was a kind of a, a bedding area, but also a transition area. There was a food plot down the hill below me, and there was another food plot sort of off to my uh, north. And, and uh, we just had good deer activity through that area. And this buck came from down below where the food plot was, came up over the rise, and he was passing, I don't know, 80, 90 yards out in front of me crossing through this stand of pines and I I grunted at him several times as he crossed through there and at one point he stopped for a moment and even looked over in my direction but he really didn't have want any parts of it he just continued on where he was going and it was clear to me he had he had somewhere in mind that he wanted to be or something that he was doing you know that was a pressing matter after he got out of sight I waited a couple minutes and I rattled uh, a good loud sequence. And then, you know, I didn't think too much more about it. I just thought maybe that will arouse his curiosity. And it was, it honestly was about 30 or 45 minutes later. And lo and behold, that buck came right back the way that he had come. And you talk about, you know, how good they are at determining the location of that sound. And he literally came back that trail that he had passed through earlier. And when he got out, you know, in front of my stand about that, you know, 70, 80 yards or wherever he had crossed in front of me before, he took a left-hand turn and came right to the base of my tree seven yards and I ended up shooting that buck but that just goes to show you know he still wanted to go do what he wanted to do but he also was curious about what he had heard and and after I assume he thought he was going to go find a doe and he didn't and then when he didn't find that doe he figured he was going to come back and kind of investigate you know what was going on back there yeah, no, for sure. And, and I, I think it's you were his plan B. Um, he wasn't going to leave his plan A until he followed it through. And, and I'll bet you you're exactly right. He had some place where the night before he'd seen a doe or smelled a doe or something, and he was going to go see, you know, what's the deal over there. Maybe he heard a fight, you know, two hours before when he was up on the food plot, you know, and he's like, I better go check that out. And then after he got done checking it out and there wasn't anything interesting there, he thought, well, okay, plan B, what was that? what was that deal over there um and i've seen that work a number of times too i mean i've killed bucks like that too um and there's, a, there's you brought up an important point in there <clears throat> excuse me that i think is really worth touching on with calling that is um if they don't stop and look there's a pretty good chance they didn't actually hear you uh, or you didn't break through their their concentration well enough for them to register because I think even in areas where they get called to a fair amount where they're like oh boy I don't know about calling you know that might be a hunter I think they'll still stop and look when they hear it you know so people will say well he didn't even register he didn't pay any attention to my grunting you know I'm thinking in the back of my mind you know without saying it well he didn't hear it um so think about a little bit of wind blowing, a buck crunching through the dry November leaves. You know, he's 90 yards away, 100 yards away. He's got his mind on other things. And there's this low pitch that, that something going on over there to the side that he can't quite hear because of all the crunching in the wind, rustling the leaves. He, he doesn't hear it as easily as we, what we think he does. So that's where taking it up a notch. Um, I continue to raise the volume in whatever I'm doing until I stop and look. Until then, I assume they didn't hear me. Um, I don't assume that they're not interested in coming. I just assume they didn't hear it. Uh, so kind of filed that away. We've gone to the extent where, you know, the snort wheeze is kind of the, you know, I don't carry rattling antlers, so my, my second resort is the snort wheeze. And it's higher pitched, and that shrill sound carries through the air and through the wind better than the low-pitched grunting. Even if you have a loud grunt call, 
that snort weeds with that really shrill tail on it will catch them. And they'll be crunching along, don't pay attention to your grunt, hit them with a snort weed, and they lock up and they turn right over and boom, here they come. So, you know, and, and you talked about how important it is to have that plan when you've got that buck that's passing out of range that you want to shoot. And I was going to back that up by saying, I think fully 50% of the bucks that I've killed over the years, I've called in. And none of them were blind calling. They were all bucks that were passing out of range that I wanted that I, that I wanted to, you know, get a closer look at. And, uh, you know, it's just interesting that that great equalizer is just that little $12 thing that you, you know, sometimes forget in the truck. <laughs> I mean, I just as soon almost not have my bow as not have my grunt call now. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's that important. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about scents, too, because I understand you don't use them. But I think that they're actually quite valuable and you know your hunting reality is a little different than a lot of a lot of ours too again if you're a traveling bow hunter you you know you have the the great you know privilege in in my opinion of you know living where you do bill and and you know you've got farms where you're able to hunt throughout the entire season and you've you've really developed a great you know familiarity with those properties and you have such a good idea of how the deer you know use that landscape that you know some some really likely spots that if you just put in your time you're probably yeah. going to get some opportunities one, one thing that people don't realize and, and the big advantage that i have is i can literally hunt every day for five weeks you know so at some point even the you know the blind pig finds an acorn you know and, and granted you know over time you evolve that so that you're finding acorns a little bit more often but you know i can get by with not having the absolute most efficient system invented for deer hunting and still have success because i'm there day after day after day just putting the hours in so go ahead. yeah well so yeah so again you know for whether you're you know whether you're hunting at home or you're traveling i love to use the estrus doe urine during the rut and you know i'm a big advocate i will say this you know some guys they start breaking out you know the estrus urine um like in the beginning of October and I'm like you're crazy man and some people swear they have success with it you know so be it if they think they do I really like to reserve it for you know that basically Halloween week you know through through November and you know there's a couple different things that I've really seen it do Um, of course the classic you know that we all think about and I think that this happens probably not as much as we'd like. You know, it's kind of like that awesome rut action when there's bucks running, you know, behind every tree. We all dream about it, but it doesn't happen that often. And I don't think it happens that often that you get a buck that comes in from 500 yards away because you've got some scent wicks full of estrus dough urine. I don't, I'm not saying it never happens, but I haven't experienced that a lot in my own hunting. Now, what I've experienced a lot in my own hunting is that if I'm in a good area where a buck is likely going to pass through anyway, I have found great advantage in having uh, either dragged a, a, a scent trail in with me that day or hung wicks up around my stands and or applied some doe estrus urine on the ground in shooting lanes around my stands. Um, I'm a big proponent of that. What I like to do is usually have three scent wicks with me as well as a bottle of estrus urine. And when I get to my stand that morning, I'll just go, really, I don't go far from my stand. I don't want to do a lot of walking around, you know, from my stand in the woods there. I just go about 15 yards in three different directions and hang those wicks. And then I like to take like a little squirt bottle with that urine and I'll like spray some on some logs or in some leaves in spots where I know that I have a clear shot. And I can't tell you how many times that I've had bucks. Again, do I think that buck, you know, came from a mile away just because that urine was there? No, not necessarily. 
early. I think I was in a pretty good area where bucks were going to pass through, but I've had many times had those bucks stop and smell the scent wicks or linger in a shooting lane because they've got their nose to the ground smelling that urine. You know, giving yourself, whether it's calling a buck in from a long way away, Bill, or just giving yourself an extra 15 or 30 seconds of having that buck hang around your stand, maybe move more slowly. Maybe, you know, he's milling around a bit, so he's presenting maybe some better angles for a shot. Those are all things that have worked for me over the years. And that's why I continue to be a believer in the value of, of adding that scent into the overall hunting strategy that I'm employing during the rut. Yeah, and I think you're right on track with that. Um, you know, where in my situation, I have to get lucky enough to either have him pass through an opening where I can stop him for the shot or one that's wide enough and he's going slow enough where I can time it and shoot him as he's moving through. You're, you're a lot more, uh, you're creating a lot more predictable uh, shot environment. And, and that is going to create more success. You know, it's going to give you easier shots or shots where I wouldn't have one. Um, and, and even if, like, say, for example, you don't anticipate every place that you have to have a shooting lane, which is really hard to do during the rut because of the way the bucks move, um, you've given yourself some opportunity that even if that buck is passing through an area where you might not have a shooting lane, he might linger here or there. He might, you know, adjust his course slightly to put him in a position where you can shoot him. Um, you know, I think that makes a huge difference. And, and going to that same strategy, something that I resisted doing for no good reason, and I probably started doing it this year a little bit, is putting out um, like rubbing or scraping posts in front of the stands that I've got on the edges of these little small food plots that I've got. Because I've always just thought, well, if he comes out, you know, hopefully he comes down here and I'll get a shot at him. Well, he doesn't always come down here. But if you give him a reason, you know, like a scrape post or a rub post or whatever you want to call it, 20 yards or 25 yards out in front of my tree stand, he's much more likely to come down and position himself for a shot. Um, there's no good reason not to do it, you know, and, and just that, you know, I've been hard-headed over the years of saying, well, I want to beat them at their own game. But at the same time that you're beating them at their own game, there's a lot of them that you don't kill because they're, you know, you just weren't able to beat them. So, you know, having these little tricks where you manipulate the deer to create a better shot uh, makes a ton of sense. So, you know, I'm leaning more that way. Um, like I said, I think those rub and scrape posts are a huge addition when you're hunting little openings. You know, because it doesn't create that randomness of their movement. Now they've got a certain place that they feel like they have to come to to check out, and that just happens to be, you know, 20, 20 yards away broadside. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. You know, and I, and I, should, I should probably dig into that a little bit more myself because, like I said, I'm sure there are opportunities that have slipped through my fingers because I didn't get a shot when the shooter came through just because he didn't have a reason to. Yeah, I'm surprised you don't have some kind of a a scent sponsor or something like that. Or, <laughs> well, or do you? No, we don't. And, and uh, you know, there's no re- real good reason not to. You know, it's just again, it's just my hard headedness. Um, you know, I just have not been using it. Um, and and you know, I'm sure that as time goes on, you know, people change, times change. You know, some of the yeah that I use will change too, but. You know, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't take away at all from the success that comes with that strategy. I believe that you're, you have a better system. It's just that, you know, I hunt with a compound bow instead of a rifle, you know. So, you know, everybody has this certain level in yeah. the continuum of challenge where they find themselves. It's got nothing to do with legal or ethics or anything. It's just, you know, some guys love hunting with traditional equipment. Um, you know, they've intentionally limited their own potential success um, you know by using equipment that's maybe not quite as accurate or quite as, as efficient as what I'm carrying you know I've just done that a slightly with the approach that I take to hunting um, you know I've limited potentially the amount of success I can have because I have a certain way that I want to do it um, because that's what I enjoy so it's you know it's just one of those things where you're not always trying to figure out the absolute best way to kill them you know I was really slow coming to the trail camera stage um you know foolishly so but you know i'm not i wasn't an early adopter of of trail cameras um 
even though they're a complete game changer. I don't think there's anything out there that's that we can use that, that changes the game as much as what, what trail cameras do. Um, just because I thought, well, you know, I don't want to make this too easy, you know, and then when I started messing with them, I'm like, yeah, you know, it definitely makes it easier, but it also makes it funner too. Yeah, we could, we could, let's talk about cameras a little bit. Two more quick things on sense. I just want to say that uh, for, you know, those who are listening, again, I caution you against using the estrus urine too early in the season. I've actually found uh, that the does don't like it. I've, I, I've seen some does get kind of spooky off of estrus urine before there's, I guess, does and estrus naturally. I don't know if that's just some weird thing I've observed or if it's, you know, something that occurs, you know, all over if you do that. But that kind of turned me off on trying to use it too early in the season. Obviously, there's a lot of other scents you can use in terms of just regular, you know, straight dopey or you know like a like a herd in a stick from evercom which is just kind of like a bedding calming scent i know a lot of people who swear by that and uh one other thing on sense is i've got several friends who swear by just using straight buck urine as a cover scent and they like to just squirt buck urine on the bottom of their boots when they walk in and they feel like that's just a, a really good cover scent and uh that's another thing that i've done some myself and uh seems to be fairly effective. So that just kind of wraps up my thoughts on sense. Now, jumping over to trail cameras, which you had talked about sort of in general, let's talk about trail cameras during the rut, Bill. And, you know, of course, most of us are running trail cameras nowadays. How valuable are your trail cameras during this sort of magical couple of weeks that we all sort of focus on every year? Well, they they haven't been... um they haven't been that instrumental in the past. Um, I'm going to change up what I do this year. I'm going to I'm going to try the the Cuddy Back Cuddy Link system, which allows me to to check um, all of my cameras from one camera. You know, so there, there's there's a couple reasons why I never ran cameras during the phases of the rut that I was most excited about hunting, which seems like counterintuitive. Like it seems like you should be more in tune with your cameras during those times. The problem I had is, uh, you know, everything takes time. And if I'm on stand, you know, for X number of hours in the morning, maybe take a break for an hour to grab lunch or run back to the office and get some work done and then try to get back into a tree again. And, you know, it's hectic. And then the hunt is over with and we've got all this footage that we got to manage and, you know, talk about the next day's hunt. I just never felt like when I was in the heat of the of the moment that I wanted to mess with that extra hour that it took to go out and check my cameras. I didn't want to have that intrusion during that time when I was going into areas that were potentially sensitive. And I always felt like two or three day old information during the rut is almost useless. So it almost felt like I had to be checking cameras every single day in order for it to be relevant. And I just didn't have the time for it, nor did I want to create that much of a of an intrusion into my hunting areas. But this system, you know, potentially can change that because I can run a string of cameras and, and check all of the cameras from one. Um, so I could have one camera near the road. I could pop in there, you know, pull that card and then go home, you know, and quickly pan through it and say, okay, well, camera number three, way down at the other end of the line, that buck that I've been hoping to see is showing some daylight activity. In fact, he was there this morning. That could be a big time game changer, um, you know, because then all of a sudden you get this real time feedback and you don't have to go in there and, and create that kind of intrusion. Um, so that's been my, my feeling on the cameras during the rut. You know, I've been a huge advocate recently of all the information that I can gain, you know, prior to the time when I start hunting. Um, but then as soon as I started seriously hunting, which is usually about the 25th of October, when I say, okay, I'm done planning, you know, for better or for worse, here's the way my next five weeks are going to go. Um, and then off I go, you know, and just hunt. And I don't look at my cameras again. Um, that's been my strategy in the past. And for the most part, it's worked. Uh, once in a while, I'll run a camera or two here or there that's, uh, you know, close to a lane or someplace I can drive to really easily with my truck, you know, jump out, check the camera, jump back in the truck and drive off, you know, without, you know, making a whole lot of, of intrusion to the deer. But again, you know, there are people who do this a lot more aggressively than me, you know, and, and I'm going to change my strategy a little bit this year, but that's been, you know, the way I've done it in the past. 
Yeah, the thing about the thing about November is the intelligence. You know, during the summer and early fall, we're we're piecing together long term patterns, and the, during the peak of the rut, you know, you just because a buck is there today, he might be gone tomorrow. He might be gone in two hours. So yeah, you really have to have that immediate information and then be able to act on it, or it may not be very valuable. Yeah, I feel like, I don't feel like I was losing anything by not running cameras during the main days of the rut. I felt like, so, so let, let's talk um, big picture here real quick. Um, you know, I'm starting to lose my voice. We talked for an hour before the interview even started, so I'm kind of getting toward the end here. But well, that's all right. I mean, we are, we're 58 minutes into the show, so we will okay. want to wrap it up before too long. Okay. So the, the big picture is you've got a summer range and a fall range for these bucks. And there's a transition time after they shed their velvet and break up their bachelor groups when they move out into those fall ranges. And I figure once I peg those fall ranges for specific bucks that I'm excited about hunting, and I really feel like, okay, I've confirmed it. This is where that deer is living now. Um, I don't have to know a whole lot more about that deer in, in order to hunt him effectively or at least reasonably effectively throughout the rut. He's going to have these little day trips and stuff like that where he's not there, but he's going to be home more often than he's going to be gone, especially the older he gets. He just doesn't have as many day trips as he used to when he was just a young pup. Um, so I didn't feel like not running cameras during that during that peak time of hunting was really limiting me as long as I knew specifically where the, the fall ranges were of some of the bucks that I was excited about. Um, that was my whole trail camera philosophy. And then, you know, one step further, you know, in October, we'd all love to kill a deer in October. So if you can monitor your cameras and say, okay, I've got a buck on a daylight pattern, you know, then you can take advantage of those rare situations where, you know, you actually do have, you know, bucks showing up in daylight, um, which, like I said, is not very often. You know, once you get into the rut, obviously that changes. But uh, so that, that's been my my philosophy in general is is uh, figure out exactly where they're living as best you can. And that might I mean there's a whole lot we can talk about there. I mean we could spend an hour talking about how to peg their core core areas using trail cameras. That's another show for another day. Yeah, yeah. So so in my mind, as soon as I've got his core area pegged, or to the best of my ability, I've got it pegged. I don't need to know much more about that. You know that, that I need a camera for beyond that. Um, but like I said, if I could get real time information, you know that could adjust some of my stand choices. You know in the future. So I'm going to look at that Cuddy Link system and see how that plays out. Well, let's wrap it up with this, Bill. And um, you know, first of all, you know, thanks again for being on the show today. I think there was a lot of really good information that we shared with the listeners today, and hopefully, you know, will help them to be. Oh, more effective during the rut this year. But aside from all of the, you know, the information that we shared, the tips, the tactics, the how-to, you know, this is just a time to enjoy and appreciate, you know, the experience because we all wait like 11 months a year for the rut to get here and uh you know let's never let's never forget to you know even on those days when it doesn't work out the way that we had hoped you know to just appreciate the opportunity that we have to be out there and uh enjoying nature uh, seeing you know not just deer but all kinds of other animals you know doing their thing and and what a blessing that is well and, and we're outdoorsmen first and deer hunter second and the key word in outdoorsman is outdoors you know so we just love being out there you know so you know we talked early on in the you know in the show here about uh you know not getting too complicated you know not making this you know so it's too stressful you know just kind of go with the punches you're not going to get this perfect nobody's getting it perfect you know the the if, if they are, if they're telling you that they are, then they're probably trying to sell you something. Um, this is, there is a lot of days when you will not be in the right spot. Um, don't stress out about it. You know, just do the best you can, enjoy it. You know, put your time in. You know, you may not kill one this year, but that just brings you one day closer to when your success does come. And when it does come, it'll be all the, the more rewarding, um, you know, because of what you've invested to get there. So, you know, I, I like killing stuff, don't get me wrong. But I've had seasons where I haven't shot deer, and uh, those were fun seasons too. You know, it wasn't like 
I blacked those out. The only, the only seasons I've had where I didn't enjoy them is when I was too stressed out about trying to kill a certain deer that every day, you know, I, I was just too wrapped up in that. Um, you just have to enjoy it and, and take the stress off and, and, uh, like you said, just be out there in this creation that God made for us that we can just relax and unwind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've all been there from time to time when it stops being fun. And that's when it that's when you really have to take a step back and evaluate, because here's the thing, right? Deer hunting is a blast. So when deer hunting stops being fun, guess what changed? Right. Did the deer change? Did the woods change? No, we changed, right? And so that's when we have to take a step back and figure out how come something that was so fun, you know, has now ceased to be fun and and an attitude adjustment is typically in order. Um, But hopefully we don't go there this year, Bill. And uh, like you said, it's not... It's not the end of the world. You know, it takes a few years, especially being in the industry. You know, there's there's a time when you feel like your your value as a deer hunter is tied to like, well, can I get that animal killed? And then you realize really at the end of the day, you know, you're going to be the same guy tomorrow, whether you kill nothing or you kill a 200 inch buck, you're still going to be that great Bill Winky that we all know and love. Well, yeah, for better or for worse, right? You forgot that part. Um, so, so no, I, I totally agree. You know, I think that, you know, that's probably one of the best things that people can take from this. That, you know, I had this conversation with myself one day, and, and I was beating myself up over a really big deer that got away. I mean, I just went for weeks where I just couldn't give myself any grace at all about it. And finally, I had to stop, and I said, look, if I'm going to lose sleep over deer hunting, then I'm going to stop deer hunting. So either get this figured out now where I'm not stressed out, I'm not worried about what my neighbors are shooting or what happened to the certain buck that I'm after or whatever. You know, if if it's got me to that point where I can't enjoy deer hunting because I'm so wrapped up about, you know, a certain deer or being successful, then I need to stop deer hunting. So that, that kind of fixed it for me and I haven't gone backwards since. So it might be a good reality check for a lot of our listeners too is that, you know, we love this stuff, but let's not let our, our self image as hunters be tied around the fact that we kill something big every year you know let's just enjoy this this ride this journey that we're on good word my friend let's end it on that thanks again for your time i know that you and i are going to be in touch here throughout the season so i'm excited i know that you're excited uh hopefully you know fate smile upon us and we both have some success but if we don't uh we're going to enjoy the ride and we want to wish everyone who's taken the time to be with us today good luck to all of you in the field and we hope you all have a, a successful safe and enjoyable season Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com. 